Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily, the Bunker Podcast little teeny sibling show where we talk to someone interesting and see if the lockdown has driven them mad yet. My name is Ian Dunt. I'm the editor of politics.co.uk and on the program with me today is Tom Chivers, author of The AI Does Not Help You, Superintelligence, Rationality and the Race to Save the World and the science writer for various publications, including The Times, The Guardian, and The New Scientist. He is also the man, more importantly, uh, who spent at least two evenings trying unsuccessfully to explain to me what quantum mechanics is. Hello, Tom. How are you? Hello. Hello, Ian. Long time no uh, explain quantum mechanics. Yes, yes. yes. Well yeah. I mean, every day that I don't try to understand quantum mechanics is, is a good day for me. That is, that is what I learned from that experience. Well, I've, um, it's, it seems to be my life of trying to, I, I spent some time trying to explain Bayes' theorem over the radio the other day, and that, that, was, that went exactly as well as you'd imagine. You're sort of ahead of the curve, aren't you? Because, I mean, science is now like the, the major topic of, of, almost all political conversations my my wife it's, it sounds really I, I found myself complaining about it in a whatsapp chat the other day to a friend and then realized i was complaining about it to a friend who just lost his job and i thought this is just really inappropriate and dreadful and i should be i should be ashamed of myself you know but yeah i've been like I, I've, every night I, there's suddenly people yeah sudden, no no one cares about science most of the time and then suddenly when there's a massive global pandemic suddenly everyone wants to know about viruses it's completely, unre- completely this is so weird what, yeah. could, what could have occurred to them and um, yeah. what, what do you think of this treatment of um the scientists who are informing government policy i mean even specifically you know the, the guys that appear on the podium there's a sort of there's a sort of sense, like as you as you looked at the government's reaction to the Sunday Times sort of piece yesterday or day before, um, where the, the way that ministers said, "Well, look, at each time we were just following the science," that the, the sort of the political reporter in you just sort of sees the like, "Yep, sounds like you're setting them up to take the fall on on this one." Is that is that your take from it as well? Well, I, 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 I so I, I'm. I think the the hardest thing to do as a communicator of science, whatever you want to call it, is to express to explain just how explain uncertainty. Right? It's actually really hard to say um, this is what we know. This you know you get it all the time with um, financial forecast, economic forecast, and some and they say you know we we forecast the. Um, uh, economy will grow by 2.3% this quarter or whatever. And everyone reports, oh yes, economy will grow by 2.3%. And they don't tell you the uncertainty intervals, which is it will actually be between minus 3% and, and plus 9%, you know? And, it's actually, and, and, and we're also used to sort of looking for this certain exact thing about the future. So that's what I think is going on a lot of here, is that scientists are des- desperately trying to piece together um, a sort of picture of the future in this gigantically uncertain sort of world. This is desperately trying to, you know, build models on data that is, you know, we, we don't actually know the most basic of information, like how many people have been infected, that sort of thing. Mm. And you're mm. trying to get that information like that and plug it into a model, which will then tell you things like, you know, how deadly is the disease, how um, how often, how many people get it for for each person who is infected. What and then, you know, and the thing sort of thing that that spits out then informs what should we do next? How should we, you know, how, to what extent will should we lock it down? What what will the economic impacts of not uh, it be? A, you know, is, is there the, all these trade offs we have to make? All these complicated political decisions. Hmm. So I feel like when they say we're following the science, on the one hand, it is not what they're doing. Right, what you're doing is making a political decision. I think you know you're you're, you're doing you're making a value judgment mm-hmm. of. I think this number of deaths is um, worth this much impact on our liberty or this much, you know, and, and, there, and it's, mm-hmm. let's not pretend that isn't a real decision that has to be made. It's not that each that a death is in, a life is infinitely valuable, but there is going to be a 
political decision, a moral decision made about what level of risk you're prepared to, put, to, to take. With that said, it does sound like under most, the most the sort of reasonable estimates of how the situation is at the moment, actually stuff like the lockdown are probably, and I'm uh, sort of want to knock, knock on wood or not, you know, sort of like sort of somehow cross myself when I say this. So I, I, you know, I don't want to leave any hostages to fortune. That's but, very sciencey of you. I, I hear all the scientists cross themselves when they make yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The, the horseshoe. The, that's that Neil Spore thing about the horseshoe over his uh, door, and someone saying, I, and him, so someone saying, I, I, I can't believe you believe in that, and he says, Well, I'm told it works whether you believe in it or not. So yeah, so so the, I, I think you know the, the the impact of the lockdown, you know, in terms of lives lost through declining economy and so on. I think most of the central estimates suggest that actually the the the, the scientists saying no lock things down now is actually appropriate. I, then you get into whether we should have done it earlier and all these different things. But I I have so much sympathy both for. And you will not hear me say very often that I have a lot of sympathy for Boris Johnson or Matt Hancock, mm. but I have an awful lot of sympathy for anyone who has to make these gigantic history-making decisions on the basis of this information that is just, it's, there's, it's just not there. There's so little information. It could be so dreadful if they get it wrong. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know, I, I wrote a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago or something, but quite often... Um, and do stop me if I'm gabbling here, but I, 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 no, this, this is the thing that's that's been on my mind is that quite often I write pieces in which I take some thing that's in the news, you know, we're looking at epi- epidemic of loneliness, and I say, look, I can do this. I look at these numbers, and I I think, well, I think actually this doesn't add up, and I can do these sums, and and oh, look, I think it's all right. My, my GCSE maths qualification, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I come on and say, I think you're wrong about this, and I feel pretty good about myself. <laughs> and then if, if, if I've messed that up, it's so embarrassing, and I look like such an idiot, and I get publicly pilloried by the few the five or six people in the country who care about what i say but the no one dies right nothing bad really happens apart from i look like an idiot if these guys fail to carry the two in their big spreadsheet or if they even just you you know they just make some number get some number wrong then it could be the difference between five thousand people dying or a hundred thousand people dying you know this mm-hmm. is huge impacts and then when you're and that's just for the for the modelers and then if you're the person who's been given the information from this model and saying, well, it's not our decision to do anything with it, you have to now go and take it. I, 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 I can absolutely see how there might be people in the background. And this is where the political reporter, I'm sure, will be right to do things like saying, you know, how, how, how are they manoeuvring to throw people under the bus here? And maybe that's what's going on. But for me, I'm just looking at thinking, oh, thank God I don't have to make these decisions. I just, I, I wouldn't know what to do. I would, I'm, I, there's so much uncertainty. It is terrifying. And every little mistake you make will be awful. So anyway, that's that's my feeling on scientists. I'm always kind of, uh, that podium thing still strikes me. It's something about the, the sort of symbolism of it almost, that if you get science, Okay, so like you know, think about like the way that say Popper or something would talk about science, you know, falsification. Mm. Falsification. Yeah. So basically, you always want to leave yourself as open to being wrong as humanly possible, and you should like embrace your your wrongness rather mm. than trying to you know create this sort of trench in which, which you can make your reputation on this theory. Um, yeah. when you get scientists and put them on a podium and get them to defend themselves against questioning day after day after day, it it sort of feels almost like it's going to achieve the exact opposite of that, that that you can right now sort of almost see a bit of politician creep into the scientists who are up there just because 
they've had a position and they're now in a way defending their own record. Do, yeah. do you think that's, do you think that's, do you think that's happening or, or am I just sort of projecting? Well, I, I, I don't want to sort of psychoanalyze, but yeah, I mean, it'd be, it would be, be inhuman if it wasn't right. Like you've, you've got your, your, you've met, you've publicly nailed yourself to this position with this is the right thing to do. And then you'll, you will not only look like an idiot, but be accused of killing lots of people. If it turns out to be wrong, it would be, it would be inhuman if there wasn't some part of you saying, of course, I'll, you know, of course we've done our best here. We've done the right thing. That said, I mean, it's not as if they have been unwilling to, you know, change direction at times, the uh, on March sixteenth, mm-hmm. when the um, I should say, it's, it's not that the imperial model came out and they changed direction. Uh, as my, my understanding of it is that the the imperial model was released on March sixteenth because they the 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 government asked them to bring it forward so that it was um, available as to support, provide scientific support for the for the decision. They, they'd been in contact with imperial and all this information was known to the government, but they and they were going to make this announcement on March sixteenth, and they said, "Can you get this thing published so we can say, look, this is why when you do mm-hmm. it?" Um, which I don't know seems to me a fairly reasonable way of going about things. Um, they do are, they do seem to be willing to change direction on things, but yeah, I mean, if you're if you're part of Public Health England or part of some you know one of the bodies that are responsible for pandemic preparedness and prepare, you know providing PPE and all this sort of stuff, then I I would be amazed if there wasn't some bit of you that got your back up when people are saying no, you've failed on this sort of stuff, and mm-hmm. uh, you know to what extent that is the the other thing though right is I know a lot of epidemiologists because um, my mum is one and I oh, wow. yeah my um uh she's retired but um I've just found I just found out from the conversation with her the other day that in fact she was doing contact tracing on meningitis outbreaks in when, when I was a kid mm-hmm. I didn't know anything but anyway um but yeah so like, I, I've, I've been speaking to quite a lot of them and uh, to various other sorts of scientists and and quite a few people who know people like Chris who know Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance and they all say these are people who will do you know they're, they're all full of praise for them these are serious clever people who will take the information mm-hmm. on board and do and do their best for them so yes it would be inhuman if they weren't to some degree um driven by a need to defend their own reputation but i think insofar as any human can avoid that i my the thing things i'm told about chris witty in particular and to some degree patrick valance i haven't heard so much about him is that this is just someone who will absolutely do his best with the scientific evidence in front of him. So I, I, I am hopeful that it's not as, uh, not as not that he's just up there saying, well, I, I got it right and no one can tell me differently. You, know? mm-hmm. you, you mentioned uncertainty earlier. What is, is there anything at all, apart from this is bad, that, that we can be certain about now after it's been, what has it been, sort of three and a half months really that we've been looking at this thing? There's nothing you can be certain about. There are your uncertainty intervals narrow as you go along, right? I mean, things like when we were, when I, 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 was, I was the other day trying to think, but when I last wrote a piece that didn't mention coronavirus and it has been weak. But when I, when I first, <laughs> when I first wrote something about it, um, uh, which was January and it had the slightly um, unfortunate headline of this will not be the next black death, which I mean, you know, on one hand is true, <laughs> but it's quite an easy bar to clear, right? You know, thirty percent of the world population will not die. But yeah, so when I, when I wrote back back then, I remember right, I, I wrote, it looks like the, and, and I can't believe I put this in this quite sort of um, not exactly blasé, but like you know, hey guys, maybe you know, let's let's not totally freak out. And I was saying the the case fatality rate, case fatality ratio was 
probably, you know, compared to SARS or MERS isn't that bad, it's probably only about 2%. Now, 2% for, mm. if, if it was 2%, if we thought now is a 2% fatality ratio, we would be petrified because we're basically going to think everyone, you know, a good chunk of the world is going to get it probably eventually. And that would mean 2% of the world or, the, the, you know, some number of tens of millions of people dying. And now mm. I think most estimates put it around the 0.5% lower sometimes, depends on exactly who you're asking. But it's, it means it's, we are, I, I, I would guess it's the, probably your, your uncertainty window is between like 0.1 and 1%. And that is still terrible if a billion people get it and still millions and millions, you know, or thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of people dead, but it is much less terrible than the early indications suggested. So we are, so it's things like that. We are getting, we can narrow our, window we can narrow how certain we are about different things i would suggest that um infection fatality rate is probably in that sort of area i think with uh, the r's you know if it, terms like r zero i assume everyone's now come up up to speed with these things but r zero the average number of people infected by each person who has the disease hmm. um that has swayed around all over the place that people work it out but i think um the the last i saw things saying it's sort of somewhere between three three and four in an un uh, and it's fully susceptible popular. So these sort of things, that we, we are narrowing down on things, trying to work out more about the disease. Uh, but yeah, I would say with nothing we're certain about, certain about other than lots of people are dead and probably lots more people will die tragically. This stuff that we hear occasionally about the people getting it twice, on what, can you sort of explain to me the science of, of, of why we assume that there's a certain amount of immunity after you get something like this and, and why in some cases it's, you know, longer, shorter and why conclusions have been based in the case of COVID as to why we think that it wouldn't be for a while that you would get it again. Okay. So, um, with the usual, I'm not a virologist disclaimer, but I, I have spoken to virologists and therefore have obviously downloaded every single piece of information in their brain. Um, the, uh, the, Basically, our bodies, the, uh, our bodies, when they get uh, when they're exposed to a new infection, they um, the, the the antibodies in our bloodstream eventually, hopefully, the uh, one that is appropriate to attack this new pathogen will will find the pathogen. Will if it if it kills it, it will then suddenly replicate massively and spread all around your body and and kill the virus. Right, that's the idea. And then once it's done that your body will have a sort of store of these particular antibodies that will it will keep sort of going around. So if any more of these same ones come, the same virus comes around, it will remember that and it will, um, and they'll be quicker to launch around again and attack everyone. So that's essentially what immunity is. The, uh, with certain uh, viruses like chickenpox, measles, rubella, things like that, the, the virus doesn't change all that much. So if you get it once, your body will remember it for the rest of your life. And that's pretty much just, you know, you're, 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 you're pretty, you're pretty fine with that. That's fine. With others like flu, because the virus mutates regularly, new forms of it come out uh, with flu in particular, you get um, new forms of it coming out of bird populations every year. And so the ones you're exposed to each year are um, different from the ones before. So a vaccine or the vaccines we have at the moment, at least are, only work on a few strains of them and so you'll you only get partial re- uh, response and if you have the flu once then you get a different kind of flu the following year you won't you won't be immune so you only get these sort of partial immunities i don't know what the situation with sars and mers are uh, mers being the middle eastern res- uh, respiratory syndrome mm-hmm. sars uh, severe acute respiratory syndrome these previous uh, pandemics that came up um I, d- I can't tell you about what they were but they were also coronaviruses as is the co- 
about about one in three of the common uh, just, you know one in three of the viruses that cause the common cold that go around are also coronaviruses. Certainly with the, the cold ones, I don't think there's any suggestion you get long lasting immunity from them. So uh, again, without knowing what the situation is with SARS and MERS, I can't tell you what if there's any coronaviruses that do get these long lasting things. But I think the hope that at the moment it'd be completely up in the air whether there's a really long term immunity. That said, if it's as long as the virus is relatively stable in the short term, you could expect some sort of six month or a year or something um, immunity, and that might be enough to sort of get get us past past things like that. Does, does this make sense? Trying to explain my it does. Is, is there no? It, it it makes complete sense. It, but it, it started raising some horrible thoughts in my head. It, I mean, because we always. You know, it, it, the, the most negative around us are, are sort of going, well, you know, the truth is we're not going to be over this until they come up with a vaccine in 18 months. But actually, uh, is it then possible, given what you just said, that we this is actually something we could be living with in one form or another to various degrees forever? It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. I, I think most people are pretty hopeful that there is some sort of way of doing a vaccine. I, I just read, um, just reviewed it for the time, actually, this book by uh, an epidemiologist who, um, uh, which came out in 2017 and basically what in, in the States and basically warned about exactly this happening. It was, it was really, I don't know, you know, the Greek myths of Cassandra, like mm. pr- uh, prophecies that are doomed to be ignored, you know, the curse <laughs> by the God. It was like reading that. It was like reading, a, a um, uh, you know, if Cassandra had written a book just before the Trojan mm. horse, the Trojan, the Trojan War and saying, you know, the Greeks are hiding in that great big horse. We should do something <laughs> about that. And then they release it after the, you know, the, tro- the sack of Troy. It really felt like that. Anyway, so this has just been released in the UK and I was just reading thinking, you should have released this last year, guys. Anyway, um, yeah, he was—he's saying that actually part of the problem with the flu vaccine is that they we, they thought it was better than it was, and then stopped doing any more more research into it. And actually, you probably could do a better, more universal one. And so now, and now that the world is really focused on COVID, it might be that you can do some really good uh, vaccine like that. But yeah, it is it is perfectly possible that there'd be some imperfect vaccine which would get we, we'd have to be giving everyone flu jabs every year or COVID jabs every year to to um, protect the elderly as much as possible and that sort of thing. Um, uh, it, it is not an ideal situation, but it's a lot better than the alternative of not having a vaccine. So, uh, you know, right. that, yeah. let, let's see where it ends up. Yeah, fair enough. Um, what about immunity passports? I mean, there's also sort of like sort of political implications, obviously. Um uh, I mean, what what are the chances of us able actually being able to develop these things at, before the stage that we 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 get a vaccine? Con- considering that that seems at the moment to be kind of one of the only ways in which we can sort of easily imagine normal life coming back over the next eighteen months. Okay, so I'm really sceptical about um, immunity passports in the foreseeable future. There Fucking out, Tom. You're, you're quite <laughs> depressed. You, so far, you've made me feel significantly worse, pretty much. After oh, every sorry, man. Sorry, man. <laughs> um, but okay. So, look, I'll, I'll, so antibody uh, for the for the record, antibody testing is absolutely vital, and I'll come back to why it is in a bit. But antibody mm-hmm. testing for immunity passports sounds like a bit of a non-starter to me. There's two reasons. One, the ones the tests we have available that are, or the ones that Oxford, Oxford University were testing a week or two ago, um, which they were, yeah, which we were hoping they could roll out in large numbers. They were finding that they just weren't accurate enough on, um, people who had a mild version of the disease. So they're sort of getting, getting, uh, nearly half false positives or uh, false negatives, I think, you know, so, oh so, so, so like if it about half, nearly half the people who had in fact had it were then being told they hadn't, which, you know, is not actually the worst thing in the world. If someone, um, you know, it's bad. It's bad for the person who's got it, but it's not like you're sent launching someone out into the world 
saying you're fine, go and cuddle your grandma when you haven't, when you when you mm-hmm. are in fact uh, positive, you know, when you haven't had it and you are in fact still a risk. The real problem is the other way, right? If you if someone gets told that they are positive. Um, to positive for these antibodies and so can therefore go out into the world, you know, and get this immunity passport, right? Quite aside from political uh, th- political implications and the incentives for people to catch the disease and all this sort of stuff, there's this really, this is where I try and explain Bayes' theorem on the radio, okay? Well, um, and it's, I knew it, I fucking knew it. It was going to come up at some point. I'll try and do it. I, th- I think it's quite straightforward, right? Okay, so the... Um, Imagine that you've got some disease, some test that will only give you a false positive one time in 20. So 95% um, mm-hmm. specific, specific, yeah, 95% specific, is it, but we'll just say it's 95% accurate, okay? Now let's imagine you, you use that, you've got, you've got 1,000 people and you use it on your 1,000 people and you, uh, you, and you want to know if someone gets a positive result, what is the chance of that person having had the disease? You would think... If you are like me, not a you know not a statistician, you would think that means there's only a five percent chance that it's wrong, right? It's ninety five percent accurate. Sure. But let's okay. Let's try and work, work, let's talk this through. You actually don't know. So let's try. Let's talk this through. If you have, if in, if you of your thousand people, only one of them actually has the disease or has had the disease, right? And you mm-hmm. test them on this ninety five percent accurate thing. It's ninety five percent likely that it will get that one right. It will correctly tell you that that person has the has had the disease. But of the 999 other people, it will it will get that right ninety five percent of the time, which means it will get it wrong five percent of the time, which is about fifty people, forty nine fifty people, mm-hmm. um, and that means that even though your test is ninety five percent accurate, and each person it tests gets it right ninety five percent of the time, if you, if I went and got a test with uh, in, in in that exact situation, and I didn't know whether I was the one who had it or one of the one of the fifty who were going to get the um who got a false positive. It would mean there was about a two percent chance that I'd actually had the disease. Uh, do you see what I mean? So there'd be one yeah. real positive and fifty false positives, and that means that you are. So I mean, and, and of course, it would be different if there were a, a hundred uh, people who had the disease. Then you'd be then you'd get like ninety five correct at things and fifty incorrect ones. But even then, you're sending only two thirds of people have got the right. So it entirely depends how how rare the disease is in the population, and so that means until we know how rare the disease is in the population, or at least have some way of narrowing it down, these things are largely useless as for immunity passports. So the thing we need antibody testing for is to tell us how many people in the population have had it. And if it then comes back and it says that 60% of people in the population have had it, which would be amazing by the way, and we really need to hope that's happened, but mm-hmm. it won't, you know, it won't be anywhere near that high really. Then your, then your 95% accurate test suddenly becomes incredibly useful because then it bumps you up to 95, 97% chance that, it, that, that it, you have had it. And then mm-hmm. you can start punting people out into the population. But if only two or 3% people have had it, then it's just essentially useless. And you have to find other ways of narrowing down your search to like, but maybe only giving the test to immunity passports to people who have had symptoms and then tested positive. So these are the problems. And I think that's what, that's why we need to do massive scale antibody testing, not to uh, give people immunity passports, but just to tell us, you know, how common the disease is in the population. And then you can start thinking about whether this is a realistic possibility out. My own suspicion is that it won't be and our way out will be, more to do with um, testing, tracing, uh, you know, contact tracing apps and all that sort of stuff. I think that's our, our most likely route out. And I think uh, immunity passports are probably a non-starter. There's scepticism about those uh, contact tracing apps as well, though, isn't there? That 
how far the sort of you know the Bluetooth is an accurate representation of people doing it and, and how many people in a population would need to sign up and whether it's realistic that that percentage of people would sign up to a voluntary app and if it was mandatory, you know, what are the civil liberties implications and all that? But yeah. well, a, a, do, do you agree with that? And and if so, I, I suppose you might still think, well, anyway, at, at least it's vaguely doable. So that's the best yeah. shot we've got. I feel like, okay, so I've been speaking to a couple of people at Imperial about contact tracing. Well, I've spoken to one so far, I've got another one lined up, so I can report back if I hear more from them. But the, um, but the, uh, the uh, as I understand it, yeah, you need to get a large percentage of the population signed up to them. Uh, the, there's a modelling coming out of Oxford University, I think, saying you need to get about 60% of the population at least to have this before, you know, because so, otherwise you're just, you're, you're right, what, what's, what, what are you, tra- you know, if you only find out that the people who, you only see 15% of people you bump into, then it's not going to be much good in the tracing thing. Um, mm. But they reckon sixty percent will be enough to have a significant chunk off the of, of, of uh, the infectiousness removed, and that's you know that's that's positive. Um, there are concerns over. I mean, I, this is where you know this is where I wish I was more of a tech reporter than a science one. But the um, my understanding is that it's actually quite hard with Apple phones to get them to run Bluetooth all the time like this anyway, and they don't they don't like doing it. Um, and that, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know enough about the technical details. The, the guys I was speaking to at, at uh, Imperial did seem to think this would be, would be pretty doable. The other thing is the privacy implications that you don't, you know, and there are ways around it, but it sounded to me as though the NHSX version of the app hadn't taken into account the privacy implications and there are better mm-hmm. ways of doing it. The, um, it's how, there's, there's a DP3T, which is a European... It's a conglomerate of like 25 European scientists, scientists from eight different countries or something. And they, they've done this one that does sound like it's much more privacy friendly. And I think the Google and Apple um, collaboration who are going to sort of start, start pushing these things, you know, they're going to say, we'll just put this on everyone's phones and they can move it if they like. So it's technically voluntary, but, you know, it'll be there. So then that, that really works, right? That gets your voluntary mm-hmm. thing. But they're saying we're, we're going to only do it with the, the if you're not storing it on some central database. And it sounds like the NHSX one at the moment, at least, might sort of hit the hints are coming out but it will be a central database one so it could just get hacked by some russian and then everyone's yeah personal data is everywhere and that wouldn't be you know it'll be suboptimal um but the yeah so i i think i think it is i'm i'm less skeptical of contact tracing uh as a as a route out of this than i am of uh immunity passports which i think are, you know on immunity passports we haven't even talked about what you end up doing when like you need to, you want to get back to work so you Going, we're going to go around and like lick uh, hospital gates or something until you get the disease, so you can get get a passport. I don't know. I, I, I feel there's, there's too many too many perverse incentives there for me. It makes me really nervous. I don't know anyone who wants to go back to work so much that they'll start looking door. But you never know. You never know. Maybe some people really love their jobs. All right, last question. It's gonna. It's and it's a fucking shitty question. It's a driver question to ask. But um, let's assume then that the immunity passport doesn't work. The contact tracing doesn't work. What what would you expect then? for the period until we do get a vaccine? Is it that sort of imperial thing of basically lockdown for X months and then you open it up, people start getting it again, then you lock down again. And that's basically what the next sort of two years of our lives looks like. Yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, I, I did I did do, I did wonder that. 
Um, and then I spoke to some economists, and they're all saying, "Oh God, no! Oh God, no! No, not that!" Because they're, you know, everyone sort mm. of seems to be saying, "You know, we can actually survive. We can deep freeze the economy pretty effectively for three months, and that'll be fine." And it will, and you know, short-term recessions aren't that bad, for, uh, aren't really bad for anyone's health. And then it springs back, and everyone's fine. But if it goes really long-term, and you end up, you know, people in long-term joblessness and all these different things, you end up with this sort of real impacts on, you know, that, you know, then, then GDP does correlate with. Um, life expectancy and then you start getting significant loss of life through that mm-hmm. and you know the, not to quote trump or anything but eventually it does get you do get the, the cure being worse than the disease the so so i uh, so I, what i what i would hope and certainly what seems to be the case in um other countries that are trying this now is that um they you you come out of it sort of slowly you come out with relaxed things and maybe letting children back to school at you know one one day on one day off or something like that and then try and get into a sort of steady state where it's slowly you're slowly waking things up and and then uh, rather than coming out slamming it down again because you know how how often can we deep freeze the the economy before it starts having real problems so my Mm -hmm. my current best guess which is based on nothing more than i don't see any other way around this and god knows i'm not you know as we've established i'm not a political reporter i'm not an, any sort of expert in this but i it seems to me that the best way out would be sort of to steadily release them keep a keep a really close eye on what thing what metrics are being used um and then and if you need to sort of slow slightly retighten things up a bit do it but i i once we're out if we have to really slam back down like this again over and over again then we might be in real trouble yeah, I mean, people said, you know, when I was talking about Brexit stuff, that I was depressing as fuck to listen to. But I, this, this has been like a dose of my own medicine. This conversation. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But this is this is actually worse than the quantum mechanics. This yeah. is I'm, I'm more depressed now than oh, trying to work out if it's a fucking photon or a wave or whatever the hell. It is. I'm sorry. I don't think of myself normally as, as a particularly depressing person, but yeah, I suppose I've been thinking about this stuff loads. Uh, um, but also, oh, this is really bad because I remember you once said that I'm, uh, you, you said something really nice. Like well, as soon as Tom starts to worry, I'll get really panicked. Um, yes. Oh my God. And I forgot that I said that. And now you've reminded me <laughs> and now I'm considerably more anxious than I, than I was before. Okay. Well, yeah. well on, on that note, <laughs> we will, <laughs> I will now retreat. Okay. You too, man. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you very much for listening to the Bunker Daily. We're on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you very much, and uh, see you tomorrow. Bunker Daily was presented by Ian Dunt and produced by Andrew Harrison. Jacob Archbold was the assistant producer, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.